You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 197, Kobelskill and German Flats. Now, the Mohawk Valley in upstate New York had been the scene of repeated fighting. Even before the war, fighting with the French and Indians had accustomed the inhabitants to a regular threat of violent attack. Beginning with the capture of Fort Ticonderoga in 1775, divisions between patriots in the area, as well as internal divisions among the Indian tribes, led to some of the most brutal and merciless combat of the war. Most of the Loyalists in upstate New York had fled to Quebec. Many of them had joined the Burgoyne campaign to return to the Mohawk Valley and retake the area for the king. Many Indian tribes also joined the British effort. Notably, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, the Mohawk and a few other members of the Iroquois Confederation threw off their traditional neutrality to support the British. Other Iroquois, including many warriors from the Oneida and the Tuscarora tribes, backed the Patriots. This division led to a civil war not only between local colonists, but also within the Iroquois Confederation. One of the leading Mohawk chiefs whom I've introduced before was Joseph Brandt, also known as Diane Denega. Brandt was a Mohawk war chief, but was also comfortable in the world of the English. He had visited London and was a Mason. He was also a relation of the Johnson family, which had lived and served as Indian agents in upstate New York for decades. Brandt had been one of the primary leaders to convince the Mohawk to shed neutrality and join the British effort to crush the rebellion. He had led an army of warriors under General Barry St. Ledger to capture Fort Stanwix in 1777. Working with Brandt was Lieutenant Colonel John Butler of Butler's Rangers. I mentioned Butler back in episode 192 at the Wyoming Valley Massacre. He was a longtime resident of the Mohawk Valley and an associate of the Johnson family, as well as friends with Joseph Brandt. Like other Tories, Butler had been forced to flee New York for Quebec and had organized a regiment of Loyalists to fight for the king. After the failure of the Saratoga campaign and the capture of Burgoyne's army, the British all but abandoned upstate New York. They destroyed Fort Ticonderoga and withdrew back to Quebec. While the regulars left, the Indians and settlers from upstate New York, who had backed the Loyalist cause, were not ready to give up their homes quite so easily. They continued to raid the areas around their old homes. These smaller raids picked up considerably in the spring of 1778. They still expected an eventual British victory and continued to fight against the rebels. Their raids into the Mohawk Valley were organized and orchestrated by the commanders in Quebec. 
General Guy Carleton had commanded Quebec for over a decade, well before the war began, and had also served in Quebec for many years before becoming governor. General Carleton, you may recall, had led the first effort to take Ticonderoga in 1776, only to get stuck fighting a naval battle on Lake Champlain with Benedict Arnold before withdrawing to Canada at the onset of winter. The following year, his second-in-command, General Burgoyne, returned from a visit to London, having convinced officials to let him lead the next invasion and force Carleton to remain in Quebec. General Carleton, of course, was rather upset that officials would not let him lead the campaign and submitted his resignation. While he awaited a response, he still had to deal with the mess left by Burgoyne's surrender. After the British destruction of Fort Ticonderoga and the withdrawal back to Quebec in November, the British retained a defensive fleet on Lake Champlain until winter ice prevented the Americans from sailing up to Canada for another invasion. Carleton ordered everything destroyed between Ile-Anois at the northern end of Lake Champlain and the settlement at Saint-Jean, about 20 miles further north. He turned that whole area in between into a bare no-man's land that would discourage any attempted winter invasion into Quebec. Uh, remember, around this time, the Continental Congress was actually trying to put together just such an invasion under the command of General Lafayette. The Continental Army's inability to gather enough resources for the campaign was the main reason that it did not happen. Without Burgoyne's army, Carleton's smaller force in Quebec remained vulnerable. The British relied on the Loyalist and Indian raids into upstate New York to keep the Americans occupied. Over the winter, Carleton received word that the ministry had accepted his resignation and that he would be recalled to London later in the year. Carleton would receive a new appointment as governor of Charlemont in Northern Ireland. In case you're wondering, Charlemont is a really tiny village in the middle of nowhere, but the position paid a thousand pounds sterling per year. Carleton's new job was essentially a way of rewarding a loyal officer when the government did not want him serving in a vital command anymore. The poor peasants of Ireland could subsidize his comfortable life in this do-nothing job. As an aside, British Secretary of State Lord Germain was apoplectic that the king offered this new position to Carleton. Germain and Carleton hated each other, and Germain actually threatened to resign if the king gave Carleton this new post in Northern Ireland. The king did so anyway, and with his bluff called, Germain remained at his post and quietly fumed. Carleton's replacement in Quebec was General Friedrich Haldimand. I gave some background on Haldimand way back in episode 64. Haldeman had been second-in-command to General Thomas Gage at the outbreak of the war. Haldeman was Swiss-born and had served in the Prussian and Dutch armies before joining the British Army. He was recalled from America in 1775, primarily because London was considering replacing General Thomas Gage with General William Howe as North American commander. Haldeman was senior to Howe. It would have been awkward to have a more junior officer in overall command. London did not want Haldeman in overall command, as the leadership thought an English-born general would be best for this situation. So, Haldeman had left Boston in June 1775 
the day before General Howe fought the Battle of Bunker Hill. Back in London, the ministry wanted to reward Haldeman for all of his great work. They had given him a cash reward of £3,000 sterling upon his return, and also gave him a high-paying job as Inspector General of the West Indies. Apparently, the West Indies did not need close inspection because Haldeman remained in London and collected his salary there. Again, this was one of those do-nothing jobs for generals to hold between commands, paid for by locals who had no votes. You might recall this was one of those practices that the Continental Congress had raised in the Declaration of Independence for a reason why they did not want taxation without representation. For most of the next three years, Haldeman remained without a command and simply watched events unfold in America from his comfortable position in England. Then, in late 1777, probably shortly after word of Burgoyne's surrender reached London, Haldeman learned that he would be called off the bench and sent back to America, this time as the new governor of Quebec. It took a while to work out the travel arrangements and other matters, so Haldeman did not reach Quebec until late June of 1778. Haldeman's administration did not differ significantly from that of Carleton's. Haldeman actively supported raids into upstate New York, but focused primarily on keeping Canada safe from another American attack, and making sure the Canadians remained firmly in the Loyalist camp. The British had hoped to use terror and intimidation to get the Patriots to abandon the Mohawk Valley. If the Patriots wouldn't leave, they would be killed or taken prisoner. The result would be turning the area into a buffer between the Patriots in New York and the Loyalists in Quebec. The Patriots, of course, were organized to oppose this. For many years, New York Patriots had formed local committees of safety. These were quasi-legal organizations designed to further the cause, but also keep some level of law and order in areas where the king's peace was no longer protected by the colonial government. The committees were often made up of local politicians and militia leaders who could call out armed companies as needed. By 1778, open and outspoken loyalists had pretty much all been taken into custody executed or forced to flee to Quebec. Any New Yorker found to be fighting for the British at this point would likely be executed on the spot if caught. In fact, a quick execution might be the best he could hope for, rather than a slower, torturous death. Many families of Loyalists had also been taken into custody, including Colonel Butler's wife and children. Because of this harsh treatment, many Loyalists who remained in the area kept their views to themselves, and maintained a low profile to protect their land and family. In response to this, committees of safety began focusing more on people for whom there was no direct evidence that they had taken up arms, but who were suspected of harboring loyalist sympathies. Not only did committees permit patriot mobs to harass and terrorize suspected loyalists, but it also tolerated, some say encouraged, attacks from friendly Indians against Loyalist farms. It got so bad that in March, General Philip Schuyler wrote a letter to the Tryon County Committee of Safety saying that they really needed to stop encouraging the Oneida warriors to pillage and murder suspected Loyalists. 
In early 1778, the New York legislature ordered all local committees of safety to be shut down and replaced by commissioners of conspiracy who would be appointed by the governor. Although these new commissioners would be patriots, local leaders feared they would be moderates who would not support the active and sometimes harsh suppression of the Tory threat. The Tryon County Committee of Safety remained active in defiance of state orders to shut down. In May 1778, the committee formed a posse to release a debtor from jail and charge his creditor with the costs of confinement. This attack on the court system was a step too far, and the state finally forced the Tryon Committee to dissolve. Although they complied, locals still did not want to soften their stance against toleration of any loyalist or Indian activity that threatened their communities. Now, the locals had good reason to fear the Tory threat. Small raids continued to threaten their peace and safety. In March, Tories who had fled to Quebec joined with Indians to raid their hometown of Fairfield, near present-day Herkimer, New York. The men killed and scalped one boy and took 12 other men prisoner and burned Patriot homes. A couple of weeks later, the same group raided Snyder's Bush, near present-day Little Falls, New York, capturing eight more men and burning the local mill. Nearly a month later, in late April, a group of about 20 Patriot militia mustered in Ephrata, New York, for drill. While the militia drilled, a group of Loyalists and Indians attacked and burned their homes outside of town. Several militiamen, as well as a four-year-old boy, were killed in the ensuing fight. The raiders also executed a young woman in front of Fort Clock. In May, the village of Cobleskill became a target. The small village of around 20 homes had its local militia, commanded by Captain Christian Brown, as well as a small company of Continental soldiers under Captain William Patrick. The soldiers were assembled, aware that raiding parties were in the area. After spotting a group of warriors, the militia and Continentals marched out in pursuit of them. This, however, was not just a small raid. Joseph Brandt led an army of about 450 warriors. Brandt had deliberately sent a small contingent of his force to be spotted and then be chased back by the militia. When the soldiers marched out after the raiding party, they ran right into an ambush of several hundred warriors. The attackers killed Captain Patrick and his lieutenant in the first assault, along with several others. The soldiers did put up brief resistance and returned fire. The number of attackers, however, were far too great. The men soon turned and ran for their lives. Most of those killed were Continentals, who had led the initial pursuit. After the fact, Captain Brown of the militia said that he had suspected an ambush and warned Captain Patrick of that possibility. Brown and most of the militia escaped with their lives. Several of the soldiers took refuge in a nearby house owned by George Warner. From there, the men fired on the pursuing Indians, thus drawing attention away from the rest of the militia company that was trying to escape. The Indians turned their attention to the house, setting it on fire and burning those inside. Two of the defenders attempted to escape the burning building and were immediately cut down. According to one source, the raiders captured a Continental soldier there, who they later tortured to death. 
Others, though, were in fact able to escape. The Indians burned many of the area farms as civilians fled and hid in the woods. The raiders stole or shot any horses, cattle, or other animals on the farms. Surprisingly, the one building they did not burn was a log cabin on George Warner's property, the same property where they had killed soldiers firing at them from the main home. Local speculation after the fact is that they left it standing in hopes that Warner would return and they could capture him there at a later time. Brandt also captured several settlers who were given the choice of being integrated into his tribe or being sent back to Fort Niagara as prisoners. Even though prison could often mean a slow death, the settlers chose the latter. The fight at Cobleskill was not a complete rout, though. The militia and Continentals involved put up a pretty good fight as they withdrew. After the battle, the Patriots counted 22 Continentals or Patriot militia killed. According to one source, 25 raiders also died in the fighting, and another seven wounded died on the march back to Quebec after the raid. The low-grade fighting continued. In June, the two sides managed a brief truce, where loyalists who had fled to Quebec were permitted to return to collect their families and remove them to Quebec. According to the local patriots, these 100 loyalists abused the terms of the truce and used the opportunity to capture several prisoners whom they removed to Quebec and also burned several homes along the way. In July, of course, residents heard about the Wyoming Valley Massacre just to the south in Pennsylvania, an event I covered in more detail back in episode 192. That same month, Joseph Brandt led raids against the villages of Springfield and Andrewstown in New York, killing eight and taking 14 prisoners. Now, these are only some examples of the many low intensity raids, some on isolated farms or individuals that kept the entire population of the Mohawk Valley on edge. Some families fled the area, but most had nowhere else to go. So they remained and they fought. The sustained attacks in the Mohawk Valley, as I said, were part of a larger plan. Brandt's tactics hoped to frighten the locals into leaving or swearing allegiance to the king. But he also went out of his way to protect the lives of women and children to protect the property of loyalists, and to warn the Patriot inhabitants of more raids and destruction if they did not leave, thus giving them a chance to remove themselves from harm. In late summer, Brandt and his combined force of warriors and loyalists occupied the village of Unadilla. The occupiers demanded that the local inhabitants provide the army with food and supplies, although most of the locals just fled. Nearby communities worried about their defense. They did not stray into fields or the woods on their own, and they worked to build up small forts at their villages for better defense. German Flats was one of the westernmost communities in the Mohawk Valley, about 20 miles north of Unadilla. Patriots built two forts nearby. Fort Dayton sat on the north shore of the Mohawk River, and Fort Herkimer sat on a south shore. Tryon County Militia Colonel Peter Berenger commanded a regiment of militia at the two forts. In order to prevent any surprise raids, he regularly sent out patrols toward Unadilla to warn of any potential attacks. 
On September 16th, a patrol of nine militiamen marched toward Unadilla, but ran into an ambush. Two of the men were killed outright, and the rest scattered. One of those men who escaped ran back to German flats to warn the people of the impending raid. The man had to run many miles to deliver this message, meaning that the raiding party would still be at least a few hours away after he delivered his warning. Colonel Berenger sent word out to all the area homes to have people gather inside the two forts for safety. Over the course of the night, the families made their way to the forts. The raiders arrived at German Flats the following morning, September 17th. The attackers were several hundred strong, comprised of native warriors, primarily Mohawks under the command of Joseph Brandt, but also some Tory militia from Butler's Rangers under the command of Captain William Caldwell. The attackers threatened the two forts, but found that the walls were too well defended. Rather than assault the forts directly, the raiders formed groups that spread into the area around the forts, burning homes, driving off horses, cattle, and other animals. Whatever animals they could not take with them, they killed. They also burned grain stored up for winter use and pretty much anything else of value. Aside from the forts, the only buildings that they did not destroy were a church and two houses owned by known loyalists. More than 700 people were left homeless as a result of the damage. The raiders made efficient work of their destruction. By noon, they had left the area. Prior to the attack, Colonel Berenger had sent out a request for reinforcements to Fort Clock, further down the Mohawk River, about 20 miles away. Those reinforcements, under Colonel Jacob Clock, did not arrive until the afternoon of the 17th, hours after the raiders had left. The combined militia force set out after the raiders, but never caught up with them. They called off the pursuit and returned home. Captain Caldwell, who led the Loyalists on the raid, later commented that his men likely would have massacred many of the residents had they not received advance warning and taken shelter in the forts. His men were mostly former neighbors who had to flee for their lives because of their support for the king. Many of them had lost everything. Some had seen their friends executed in earlier confrontations, including the Battle of Bennington. So, these Loyalist militia were really out for revenge. In the end, the raiders only managed to kill three people. There is no record of any raiders being killed. The continued raids into the Mohawk Valley were going to require a larger response, but that would take a while to come and will be the topic of a future episode. Next week, I'm going to take us back to the fighting around New York City, where Washington's Continentals continued to harass the main British garrison under General Sir Henry Clinton. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. 
It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks to Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Also, thanks to Kurt Avard for his support on Patreon in the Robert Morris Circle. Joining Kurt in the Robert Morris Circle this month is Knox Press. Knox Press is a publisher of many great historic books. Among them are Revolutionary Princeton by Larry Kidder and John Hazlitt's World by David Price. I interviewed both of these authors recently for special episodes about their books. If you want to read more about what Knox Press has coming up next, go to knoxpress.com for more details. My thanks also to Jerry Bauer, Dominic Koleski, Tyler Sims, Brian Berry, and Sean Wright for one-time gifts via PayPal. Also to Tim Ross, Michael Harton, and Jay Flynn for their donations via Venmo. If you want to know how to make a donation to the podcast, go to my blog, and at the very bottom of each episode, there are links to my PayPal and Venmo accounts. All of your support, of course, helps me to cover my expenses. I recently received a few emails from people apologizing because they were not in a financial position to support the show or who had to drop their Patreon support due to changes in their personal financial situation. I just wanted to respond generally to everyone on this point. There is no need to apologize. If you are enjoying the show and cannot afford to support it financially, that's just fine. I put this out there for everyone for free so that people can learn about the American Revolution, hopefully in an entertaining way. If you're listening to the podcast, you're helping me to achieve that goal. And I greatly appreciate everyone who just listens. There is absolutely no expectation of payment. That said, those who do go above and beyond to support the show financially do receive my extra gratitude. There are several people who have stepped up to provide generous support that help me cover expenses for the many folks who cannot. And we all owe them our thanks as well. Remember, Patreon support begins at just $2 a month. Even if that is not an option for you right now, I really do still appreciate you just listening. You can also help support the podcast by writing a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or other review sites. Also, if you ever buy anything on Amazon, and let's face it, who doesn't? If you start your purchase by using one of the book links on my blog and then just go on to buy whatever you were going to buy anyway, I get a small commission from whatever you purchased. It doesn't increase your cost at all and you just buy what you're going to buy anyway. So it's a great way to support the show in a small way without actually having to spend any money that you weren't going to spend anyway. But as I said, if you do nothing at all to support the show financially and just listen, I thank you for that. My goal, as I said, above all else, 
is to help people understand how the United States came into being and changed the course of the world. Your listening contributes to that goal, so thank you. Now, this week I covered a few of the many low-level skirmishes taking place in upstate New York. Despite the pullback of the British Army, this area was still heavily contested by Loyalists, both native and of European descent, who were struggling with the Patriots for control of the territory. Both sides were fighting for their homes and families, which unfortunately often leads to more brutality as each side grows more desperate to protect everything they, and often their ancestors, had fought to secure and protect. These events may be best remembered in popular culture by the 1936 novel Drums Along the Mohawk. The book also became a famous movie in 1939, directed by John Ford and starring Henry Fonda and Claudette Colbert. One of the most fascinating characters in this fight, for me at least, was Joseph Brandt. He was the Mohawk chief who led and organized most of the fighting, working closely with other British leaders to suppress the Patriot movement. Brandt backed the British, which in hindsight was a bad bet. However, the Iroquois who backed the Patriots did not seem to do much better in the long run. There were not many really good options for native tribes trying to hold on to what they had. Brandt fascinates me because he defies the stereotype of a primitive warrior that eschews the encroachment of European culture. Brandt embraced European culture. He was a Mason. He lived among people of European descent. He visited London. In addition to serving as a British military officer, he was well-read in Western classical literature and also worked as a Christian missionary. If you want to read more about Brandt, this week's book recommendation is Joseph Brandt, 1743-1807, Man of Two Worlds, by Isabel Thompson Kelsey. Now, this book, first published in 1984, is an in-depth look into the man who struggled to make a place for Native Americans in an America increasingly dominated by European culture. Brandt is one of the few Native chiefs from this era whose life is very well documented. The book is almost 800 pages long, or just over 650, not counting notes and index. The author makes the case that Brandt is not the monster that he is sometimes portrayed to be, but rather had many heroic traits. I couldn't find much detail on the author. This appears to be Kelsey's only book, although she has written articles and other shorter works from the era. Several of the book reviews note that this book was the result of more than 30 years of research and that Kelsey was nearly 80 years old when it was published. So the book appears to be the culmination of this woman's life's work looking at this very interesting character from the age of the American Revolution. So, if you're interested in the topic, check out Joseph Brandt, Man of Two Worlds. Although the book is nearly 40 years old, you still can find used copies on Amazon and other places where used books are sold. You can also borrow the book on archive.org if you don't want to buy a hard copy. My online recommendation this week is an older book about the other group working with Brandt and his warriors. It is called The Story of Butler's Rangers and the Settlement of Niagara, by Ernest Cruikshank. The Butler's Rangers were loyalists, almost entirely from New York, who fled to Canada during the war 
and had to begin a new life there after the British ceded New York to the United States. It's a relatively short book at just over 100 pages. The author, Cruikshank, was a military officer from Canada who rose to brigadier. He worked as a military historian, writing a number of other books from this era. As always, you can search for the book on archive.org or use a direct link found on my website or blog. Go to www.amrevpodcast.com for more details. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white. Yet too often, it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.